Hey everyone, this year the American Craft Spirits Association is celebrating its 10th anniversary. To kick off the celebration, this podcast is part of a special series of conversations with some of ACSA's founders and first board members. Some of these guests will also be appearing at a Founders Forum at ACSA's 10th Anniversary Distillers Convention and Vendor Trade Show this February 10th in Portland, Oregon. Visit AmericanCraftSpirits.org to learn more. Thanks. The taxes only go up one, you know, only go one way, and that's up, in particular for alcohol. And so the fact that we, as a ragtag bunch of, you know, distillers, were able to convince the U.S. government to give us parity by reducing our tax rate. I mean, it's not over. It's not hyperbole to say it's never been done before because it's never been done before. Yeah, tax rate, alcohol taxes have never gone down until we did it. From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page, and today on the program, Paul Letko. Paul is the founder of Evanston, Illinois-based Few Spirits, a gin and whiskey distillery. Few is part of Samson and Surrey, which was acquired by Heaven Hill Brands in 2022, and Few is now an alumni member of ACSA. But Few is also a founding member of ACSA, and Paul was on the association's first board and served as its second president. He recently joined me and Jeff Cialetti to discuss his early memories of ACSA. But I think there's just a lot of stuff going on in in the world at that time. And by the world, I mean kind of the small little craft spirits world, not like uh, the you know, global geopolitical world, but like in the small world of craft spirits. Um, I think it was just a really, really fast paced time because there was such astronomical growth at the time going on. And there really wasn't any sort of structure or foundation for anybody to do anything. Um, you know, my, my memories of starting up a distillery back then are very different than I think it is now because like suppliers wouldn't talk to you. Um, you know, even just trying to buy a still, the still manufacturers had no interest in talking to me. They wouldn't, you know, Vendome wouldn't return my phone calls. They do now. Um, but, um, you know, it was just really difficult to get anything done because nobody knew Nobody knew anything like, you know, how do you make things safe? How do you, how do you get finance done? How do you be safe? How do you hire? How do you fire? Uh, how do you make, how do you even learn how to operate a still if you've never operated a still before? Um, you know, so I think it was just really difficult to be in the business world at the time. And I think that's one of the things that really helped inspire a lot of us that were there at the beginning was the fact that we thought it was really stupid how hard it was. And, you know, in a small business, and it continues to be a small business, you know, we none of us really saw each other as competition. We all saw it as a rising tide lifting all boats. And, you know, the number of times that would sit and talk about it that, you know, we don't compete with people that make good stuff. We do compete with people that make bad stuff because if your stuff isn't 
the stuff's not good, people are going to tag everybody with all oh, craft spirits suck. Whereas if all of us are making good stuff, all of us will do better because people will try few and it'll be good. And then they'll go out and they'll try somebody else's. They'll try Corsair and think it's, you know, decide Corsair is good. And then they'll try few or they'll try Leopold or St. George or any number of these great places. They'll try aviation gin. They'll try all these things. And as long as your entry point into spirits is good, you'll go try another one. But if it sucks, we all hurt. And so I think, you know, I think that kind of spirit of camaraderie and working together to build all of us up is probably the memory that I take back. Uh, certainly there's hectic and lots of cats running around and chickens with no heads, but I'd rather think about the good stuff and the camaraderie and the friendship that, that we started to build and continue to build today. When, uh, what, what are your memories of deciding to, you know, run for president? We were talking, uh, w with Tom yesterday and, uh, you know, he, he kind of sounded like the, the first president uh elections were like him and ted trying to like talk the other one into being president so what 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 was what was your journey to to becoming president like i think that that's exactly how it went down i mean like everybody was fighting over who had to be president first um because like oh yeah it's not me everybody's taking a step back like oh i think tom you'd be really good um and uh yeah to be very clear tom was exceptional i think that at the time, we could not have picked a better president. And today, I would still say we could not have picked a better president. Um, yeah, I think Tom was fantastic. But it was a young organization that was young, small, and scrappy. And I think we all looked around at the universe outside, and there was no professional organization dedicated to helping all of us. I mean, there were people running around having uh, strip shows on stage at conventions, uh, there were people running around sexually harassing other distillers, um, but there was no professional organization that could build us all up. And you know, a lot of us are are and were professional. Uh, and so I think that there was a real motivation and drive to have this organization succeed and launch. And so, you know, my memories of being in those early days and you know having Tom be president and me running for president is kind of along those lines of trying to figure out the person and people that you know we collectively think can get this organization on solid footing as soon as we can. And I know like Tom's primary mission when he was president, at least to my perspective, Tom could have a different perspective. Uh, but I think Tom's primary job was to make sure that the organization launched and stayed solvent for a little bit. And then as his term ended, my kind of strategy and my focus was to make sure that we had a professionally run organization that was not going to be reliant on uh, you know, distillers doing all of the work for the organization. We could do it for a while, but we all knew that as, as the association continued to grow, it was, in fact, going to take more and more time, as well as a different skill set than you know most of us have. And so, you know, Tom's priority was to be solvent, and man, he did a killer job with that. 
and that my priority was to make sure that we had a foundation for an association that could grow and succeed over time. And the only way to do that was to have a really solid back office and a really solid and dynamic executive director. Uh, and uh, well, I think I did a pretty good job with Margie. <laughs> uh, Mar Mar I can't say enough great things about Margie for sure. Yeah, we we agree 100% about Margie, and especially we're kind of biased because she hired both of us, but we're... <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but you hired her, so in a sense, you hired us too. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, it was like it was a really fun and exciting time, and there was, you know, so much optimism and hope for the future and building this little craft spirits world. Um, you know, you can look around in twenty twenty three, and you've got you know however many 2,400 craft distilleries out there. You know, craft distilling is you know depending on your measurement, five to six percent of the business. Back then, it was less than 0.5% of the business, and there were a couple hundred distilleries. You know, back in the day, I remember, you know, you'd go out and talk to accounts and bars and restaurants and retailers, and you'd come in and say, oh, you know, we got craft whiskey. Craft whiskey, what's that? And they're kind of leaning back, and their body attitude is this, and the hands are crossed, and they're scowling at you like, the fuck is craft whiskey, man? That's a, oh, I can't say that. Sorry. Um, oh, that's fine. <laughs> so what is craft whiskey? Is that like craft beer? And be like, well, yeah, but it's different. It's whiskey. It's, uh, it's gin. You know, this is what we're doing. And no, it's not like that, but yeah, we're small. We're scrappy. We're different. I don't like this. And then they try it. They go, oh, okay, yeah, I like that. That's cool. Um, you know, now, now it's probably a little bit of the opposite. Oh, great. Another craft distillery. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, you're the guys making craft whiskey. Cool. Uh, but it was, you know, it's a different time. I mean, what's most remarkable about that is you're not talking about a time that was all that long ago. I mean, you're talking, I mean, you started what, 12 years ago, uh, AC, you know, two years later, ACSA started. So, uh, there's been a major shift. Like, what do you think the tipping point was for craft? Like about when, and when did people kind of start taking you seriously? Uh, I think kind of the tipping point was kind of, you know, frankly, right around ACSA. And finally, I think that there was a professional organization that outsiders could look to to respond to press. And you had a professional organization that could interact in D.C. And there was backdrops for education and teaching all of us little guys, you know, what are we doing? How can we do it better? Um, you know, what can we do to improve quality? What can we do to improve quantity? How could we finance ourselves better? What kind of gear do we need? How do we operate safely? Um, you know, I think it's just, it's been a real change and you're right, Jeff. I mean, it's been 12 years and you can analyze the business however you want. Um, I kind of think we're now in that kind of third wave, you know, in 2023, I think we're kind of in a third wave of distilling. Um, I don't know exactly when few started, but I would kind of call it the, to me, it was kind of the beginning or the middle of the second wave. You know, there's certainly lots of guys that were there before we were, you're talking about, you know, St. George, you're talking about, um, uh, uh, talking about Corsair, you're talking about, you know, Steve McCarthy, you're talking about guys like that. 
you know, that's certainly like that first wave. Uh, and then when we kind of started coming in, I, to me, it was kind of the second wave, whether we were early or mid or maybe even late. Um, somebody smarter than me will have to answer that one. But I think after like 2015, 2014, 15, 16 in that area, then it started becoming like the third wave of distilleries where craft spirits was a known entity that distributors and retailers and accounts and bars knew of craft spirits that it was a thing that exists and like the crossed arms and scowls were gone and there was a lot more uh welcoming to it uh and, you know that was certainly helped out a lot by a lot of people in the press too to be very clear like, uh, you know even like whiskey advocate uh, launching categories for craft whiskey of the year, um, really giving credibility and credo to the category of craft spirits, and of course, you know, particular distilleries within it. Um, I think that was kind of a big deal as people started to look and see that there was something going on. And you know, I guess you can quote Bob Dylan: "There's something going on, but you don't know what it is." But uh, that third wave to me is right around then is how I, is what I would say. And, uh, you know, as far as, um, you know, some of the major things that ACS day has done, obviously FET was huge and was like one of its founding objectives. Um, you know, tell us about that fight, how that all kind of played out for ACSA in the early years, you know, leading up to, uh, actually achieving it a uh, huge you know huge burden i think that a lot of people starting up today uh, don't even understand what it's like to pay 1350 a gallon um because it hurts <laughs> um it's a big deal to pay 1350 gallons to the 270 and i think people forget that but you know starting up man it was i don't want to say it was uh throttling but it's a big deal and if you weren't properly financing your own operations like if you didn't put that money aside you know that bill comes due in three months and you're like oh wait where's all my damn money um you know it was a big it's a big hurdle like until fet relief passed with the help of acsa alcohol taxes had never been reduced um, the taxes only go up one, you know, only go one way, and that's up in particular for alcohol. And so the fact that we, as a ragtag bunch of you know distillers, were able to convince the U.S. government to give us parity by reducing our tax rate. I mean, it's not over. It's not hyperbole to say it's never been done before because it's never been done before. <laughs> You know, tax rate, alcohol taxes have never gone down until we did it. So what do you see as the biggest issues now uh, uh, sort of facing the industry now that, you know, that's kind of been achieved? I think the big issues facing the industry are to, you know, continue the mission of ACSA. The biggest issues we have now, safety has to be number one. Uh, distilling is a fundamentally dangerous op activity, and if you do it unsafely, it hurts everybody. Uh, never mind the people that would actually get hurt in the incident. Um, safety is a big deal. 
quality is a big deal too. Like we need to ensure that people making spirits are doing it safely, but they're also doing it well because that the fundamental danger of subpar or low quality product in the marketplace continues to be a risk for all of us. Um, people will hold a mark against bad quality product when they try it. And if one, if one company's bad, we're all bad. And so I think that continues to be a, uh, continues to be an issue. I think there's all sorts of other issues ranging from distributor consolidation and market access. But I, mean, I think some of these problems can be at least partially resolved by, again, education. How do you present a package? Understanding that, yes, distilling is a fun business, but it is, in fact, at the end of the day, a business where you must sell your goods at a profit. Otherwise, you will not be able to continue making your goods. And so that education and understanding of how you do that, how do you make a product that contributes value to the market chain? And I think that's something that's really important that ACSA does is prepare people. You know, I think uh, several years ago, there was this myth that all you had to do is throw up a still and you're going to be a millionaire. Um that was never true, despite what people would make you think. Uh, but it's definitely not true now. You know, you have to operate a good, solid, quality business, or you're not going to be around. And I think the education that you can get from ACSA at the conference and in, in the you know in the magazine and in the email newsletters and in the seminars that we put on and a lot of that education, these are the things that make a big difference. Um, you know, I, I always think back to uh, a couple of years ago, I was teaching at the Distillery 101 conference. I think this was the one in Louisville. And uh, Adam Spiegel got up and gave away a Excel spreadsheet for financial planning. And I was just sitting thumbing through the spreadsheet that Spiegel just gave away. And I'm like, uh, this spreadsheet's probably worth $5 million. And you just gave it away. Because there's so much power in here. Like, there was so much power in there. It was like mind-blowing. And I think that's the kind of thing that a lot of people might not quite understand or might discount the value of what ACSA can bring to your business. It's not just safety. It's, it's also power and it's education. And it's the tools to turn this dream into a reality, whatever your dream might be. Um. ACSA has never been, you know, prescriptive of this is how you must do this. This is how you must do that. It's always, hey man, whatever your goal is, let's, you know, here's the tools that you, that are going to help you get to what your goal is. Whatever that goal is, we've got the tools to help because we've got the people who've been there, done that, and are already achieving on goals that are similar or related to yours. Uh. You you brought up you know when few was starting, um, but but what inspired you, what motivated you you know going way back but before you started it, uh, you know essentially what what was your dream for few spirits before there was ever a few spirits. I I, I tend to dream big is kind of one of my uh, personal challenges, but like I like to create and I like to make. And I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. Um, I had a different business where I was 
super creative and it was really fun and it was really cool. Um, I used to build uh, guitar effects pedals, um, talk to musicians, what kind of sound do you want? You know, how can we make this happen? And then I'd build the pedal. Really, really fun business, uh, but not particularly financially rewarding. Um, but it was cool. Uh, but then my grandfather died, and that really struck me because before World War II, his family had owned what is now a major brewery in the Czech Republic. Uh, World War II happened, Nazis invaded, confiscated their brewery, uh, murdered his whole family in the camps, except for Grandpa, obviously. Uh, but he never got the brewery back. And when he died, it kind of struck me that all this history and legacy was gone forever, unless I did something about it. So like my dream and my motivation to start few was, yeah, business. I'm an entrepreneur. I like to create, I like to make. Yeah. My motivation was art. Like I, I'd like to create, I like to make, I want to play with my hands and have something exist at the end of the day that didn't exist when I woke up. That's, that gets me excited. But for me, the motivation was really blood and family and history and legacy and it went beyond business. It was, it, for me, few goes beyond business. It goes beyond art. It goes beyond feeding my kids. It really goes into, you know, major life arcs and generational arcs of trying to create something that's big and lasting and makes a difference in the world. Um, and uh, different people can argue whether whether or not we've gotten there or not. I think we've still got a long way to go, but we're definitely on our way. And, you know, like you were saying, your previous career had to do with with music, uh, but you carried a lot of that over into sort of the brand identity for few. I mean, you've got some really good partnerships with uh, bands and, and whatnot. So, like, how did all that kind of come about? Yeah, music has always been super important to me uh, personally, professionally. Like you, can, you can see my Marshall stack just over my, uh, it's over my left shoulder, but it looks like it's my right because of the mirror. Um, yeah, music has always been super important to me and we got opportunities to collaborate with some just insane musicians uh, and I've been really lucky you know we've worked with the Flaming Lips we've worked with Allison Chains um, worked with Black Road Motorcycle Club uh, a couple others that we're not talking about quite yet but I'm super excited about um, just knock on wood that happens uh, and it's just kind of friends talking to friends and trying to do cool things um and then once we got a reputation that we were the guys that you could come talk to to do really cool stuff with spirits the phone started ringing and you know it's it's pretty crazy that people have said no to never mind the people said yes like you know 14 year old paul is kind of sitting here going how the hell are you saying no to that band how the hell are you saying no to them uh you know there are posters on your wall, you moron. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's the when it's the right opportunity, it's the right opportunity, and we've been pretty lucky that we'll be able to say yes to some pretty amazing musicians and work with them on that creative part. And I think that's one of the really fun parts. Like we had we had a tasting last night with a pretty major band uh, hasn't been announced yet. Uh, but it's really fun talking with these people because they don't know squat about making whiskey. And so it's really cool to talk with them 
and understand what they're looking for because they don't have the words to, you know, I want to taste like this. I want it to taste like that. And it's really fun to be able to create with that because it helps you take this fresh perspective of an outsider. So you can really do things that break the rules because for the outsiders, there are no rules. And it's, it's really fun and it's really inspiring. It helps be creative because it takes you out of your rut. You, you bring up some things that you can't talk about uh, in the future, but in, in general, uh, either anything specific or, or just in general, what excites you about the, the future for few? I think for few, the stuff that excites me is just that creativity and the creating of the art. You know, we as a company every day, we try to take liquid and, you know, we put liquid art in bottles every day. And so I'm really excited about some of the projects we got, like, you know, the rock band we're working with right now. Um, it's super early in the process. Like we don't have good liquid yet, but based on the tasting we did last night, this is going to be some good liquid. I'm real excited about where we're sitting that, um, yeah, we just released a uh, Koji fermented whiskey. Uh, super excited about working with that and doing some cool stuff that nobody does because that's really always been the few ethos is creativity and doing different stuff. Um, yeah, you know, we fail with our experiments frequently. That's all right. Um, we want to take big swings because we want to have big results. You know, our goal has always been to make the world's best whiskey, which I, I don't think is a goal we can ever hit because there is no such thing as the world's best whiskey. Like, but having that as a big target is cool. Uh, you know, there's a saying in Chicago based on the World's Fair, uh, make no small plans for they have no power to stir the hearts of men. And that's true. Like we make big plans and we swing big. And most craft distillers do. Like, people, like this is a hard business. If you're not swinging big, you're probably going to be in a little bit of trouble. Uh, and we, we, you know, we swing big. Um. And sort of my usual stock question I ask everyone is the uh, next 10 years for ACSA, what are your thoughts and hopes on that? Oh, I think my thoughts and hopes for the next 10 years is continue the growth and being that, you know, being the backbone of the industry, you know, being the professional association that represents all of us and it helps all of us get better. Because these, you know, it's important. It's the education. It's also the camaraderie too. Um, you know, what we do is really, really difficult. And to the outside world, distilling looks like it's easy and glamorous and fun and exciting. And everybody pictures us all day long while we're doing is sitting in tuxedos at cocktail parties, uh, you know, toasting martinis to each other. And, oh, well done, well done. And the reality is that we're standing knee deep in a sticky mash, wondering why the pump just failed and you know, trying to figure out how we're going to be able to fill this PO and try to make sure that we're going to get this done and that done. And, and it's <laughs> the reality is not just a party every day. The reality is that it's a real manufacturing business. And so I think it's, I think one of the most powerful things about ACSA is just being together with a group of people that all understand how hard this all is. Um, and, you know, we can all kind of share laughs about this, this foible or this tribulation. Uh, 
because we've all been there and you could celebrate the wins better. You can celebrate, you can commiserate the losses better because we've had the wins, we've had the losses. Um, you know, matter what you're going through, I've probably gone through it, or if I haven't gone through it, my buddy has, or hey, yeah, I'm having a problem with this right now. Oh man, yeah, I had that problem a couple of years ago. Here's how I solved it. Um, and that's been great. Like I remember talking with uh you know, trying to develop our safety program here. I remember talking with Ralph Lorenzo about their uh, vapor monitoring systems they put in after they had a uh, unfortunate incident. Um, and Ralph, Ralph saved me six months. Ralph probably saved me a hundred grand uh, just in a 15 minute call of this is what we did. That's what I did. Here's how this works. And boom, it was, you know, we were all set. Um, and I think that's really to the credit of a lot of like the real visionaries in ACSA, uh, you know, the, and the real visionaries, you know, have to include Ralph. You got to include like Nicole Austin. Um, you got to include Tom Mooney and the, the real visionaries of what ACSA is. Um, it, it's, I think it's just amazing. It's a really special thing and a really special place that we as an industry collectively have been able to build. Well, yeah, with a very solid help of uh, people like Jeff Cialetti and Margie <laughs> and Harrison and, you know, it's just amazing people behind this that are, you know, behind the scenes, but are the glue that make this whole, this whole thing works because of it. And you guys understand us because, you know, you're amongst us, <laughs> you know, you're one of us, you get how freaking hard this is. That's our show for today. Thanks again to Paul Fletco for joining us. You can learn more about Few at fewspirits.com. We'll be back very soon with more conversations with ACSA founding members and early board members. Until then, thanks for listening and cheers 